John chapter 15 is where we're going to be today, verses 1 to 12. I'm actually speaking from my favorite passage today. John 15, 1 to 12. If, I had to pin, if you had to pin me down and ask me what my favorite passage of Scripture is, it is this one from John 15, verses 1 to 12. We continue our series called Our Journey to Jesus. Different than the Wednesday series, Our Journey to Jesus. We're taking the classic Old Testament stories and we're revealing how they do lead to the Lord Jesus Christ. Today's is part two of last week's. Pastor Mel spoke on Noah's Ark. Okay, Today is part two of that as we talk about what is the point of that story? What does it lead us to? And we will talk about the storm and the refuge today. And we'll look at John 15, verses 1 to 12. But before we get there, of course, I'm going to ask you a question that's kind of an icebreaker, leads into our lesson today. Is there anything you wouldn't do during a bad storm? I want a couple of people to shout it out. What are some things you would not do during a bad storm? Anyone want to answer that? On the beach. Go to the beach. Why not, Carol? Waves. Waves. The waves might get you. Tidal wave. Hi, Joan. What else wouldn't you do during a bad storm? I'm going to give you my top ten, but I want to give you an opportunity. See if you have any of these in your... Anyone? Open a parachute. Open a parachute. <laughs> you would keep it closed? I'm just During teasing. A bad storm? <laughs> Assuming you're jumping, right? Uh, I'm going to give you my top ten worst things to do during a bad storm. Okay, Top ten worst things to do during a bad storm. See if you could fellowship with these. Now, I had to think. This was, this was a little challenging. I had to think like that. What would I not want to do during a bad storm? Most of these things I don't do anyways. But they just seem really bad ideas if there's a bad storm. For, number ten is hot air ballooning. Hot air ballooning. Would anyone do that during a bad storm? Now, I think the point of hot air ballooning is peacefulness, right? Like tranquility. I mean, you're up moving slowly through the air, right? I mean, the sun might be out. Maybe it's a sunset, a calm breeze. Maybe you could see the birds in the air. It would be a nice, gentle experience, I think. I've never been on one. Anyone? Hot air ballooning? That's a really big thing. But imagine if there was a really bad storm while you're up there. Does that thing turn immediately terrifying? Doesn't it? You're in a hot air balloon. I mean, you're trapped. What's your exit strategy? You have none. Jump? Jump. I guess that's true. You could just jump. Take that bad storm. Uh, but hot air ballooning would then turn very, very, very tragic. Um, here's another one I don't think is a good idea. I have done this before, but definitely not during a bad storm because I think it's a bad idea. It is paddle boating. Now, probably any boating would be scary in a bad storm, but I want you to picture yourself in the middle of a body of water in a paddle boat with a friend or whatever, and a really bad storm comes, and it comes quickly. Again, what is your exit strategy? This is a really funny mental image. That's why I put this one on here. What do you do? You paddle like crazy. Those legs are moving, right? Because you're trying to get to shore as fast. I just thought that was a funny mental picture of you trying to paddle to shore before the storm gets you. Here's another one that maybe some of you do, but during a bad storm, not a good idea. It is golfing. Now, golfing, I do like golfing. Anyone else like golf? I haven't golfed in years, but I do like to golf. Golfing, kind of like hot air ballooning, can be a peaceful thing until you hit and your ball goes in the woods. But um, during a bad storm, why is that a bad idea? Now, I, I watch the majors on TV, and, and as soon as there's lightning, those people get out of there. Why? What are they holding? The clubs are graphite metal, and that's probably not a good idea when there's lightning, right? You're holding a metal rod in the air. I mean, you're literally a target at that point. So bad idea. Here's another one that I just think is absolutely terrifying in general, 
but you put a bad storm on it, it is, uh, it's off the charts. It is paragliding. Now, if you're paragliding, again, maybe if you're good at it, you know what you're doing. But during a bad storm, my question is this. If it's like a hurricane and you're paragliding, can you literally be taken anywhere? I mean, can it take you to Russia? Can a bad wind just, like, grab you and throw you a continent over? Um, paragliding would be, like, the most terrifying thing I could think about in a bad storm because what's your exit strategy? You go where the wind takes you. Here's another one that kind of popped into my mind, which would be scary on its own. But adding a bad storm, it's terrifying. It is window cleaning on a skyscraper. I want you to grab that mental picture, too, of someone trying to clean windows on a skyscraper during a hurricane. What do you think is happening? <laughs> Probably take that person and spank them against the window over and over and over. Now, my next five are going to be things that don't necessarily endanger your life because of a storm. It's more five things that are bad, tricky, whatever word you want to use, and then you put a storm on top of it, they're just compounded, okay? Number five is riding a bull. Um, there are people who do this. They ride bulls for a living. Um, I just thought of things that would be bad with a storm, and the reason I thought of this is because aren't animals skittish in storms, just like some people are skittish during storms? Riding a bull, if a bull is skittish, which I think riding a bull is already skittish, but uh, riding a bull during a bad storm might be a bad idea. Here's another one. Um, using a porta potty. <laughs> I can't elaborate. I'm just hoping your mind does it. Because I want you to picture yourself in a hurricane. And you're in a porta potty and just do the math. Do the math. It should be number one because that is absolutely like, talk about, that one should be a phobia. Like, my phobia is being trapped in a porta potty during a hurricane. That would be rough. Here's number three. Uh, stuck in a tree. I just think stuck in a tree would be a bad place to be during a bad storm. Anyone been stuck in a tree? Uh, that happens from time to time. So animals get stuck in trees. That would be a bad place to be during a storm for obvious reasons. Here's number two, a bad idea anyways. Don't do this no matter if there's a storm or not. But during a storm, maybe even worse, poking a hornet's nest. Don't do that. Once again, bees might be skittish. They might be on edge during a storm. Poking a hornet's nest, a bad idea. Here's my number one. And this one's a little bit foreshadowing because um, you'll see why in a bit. Number one bad thing to do during a bad storm is talk to your mother-in-law. <laughs> um, no one laughed at that? Really? It's a joke. I have my mother-in-law coming in a couple weeks, and I just thought of what putting two things together that might be tricky would be bad storm, mother-in-law. You guys aren't laughing. That, that one's supposed to land. I, I know. You are a mother-in-law. Yeah. So that one actually is a little too close to home. Top ten things to do during a bad storm, and there is a point to that because we are talking about a storm today. We are talking about a storm, but a storm, the storm is a lead-in to our passage today. Let's read the passage we're going to look at today. It's from John 15. If you have your Bibles, join me or just look at the screen and listen to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus himself speaking. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away like a branch and dries up. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. These things I have spoken to you that so, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. This is my favorite passage in Scripture. I love the, the visual of what Jesus is speaking of today. We're talking about part two of Noah's Ark. Part two. Noah's Ark is a great story, but that story has a point. That story is not just a story of a boat and water and a family being saved. There's a point, there's a foreshadowing that that story is supposed to do for us. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at part two of the classic story of Noah's Ark. Now, the story of Noah's Ark is both a story of tragedy and a story of salvation, depending upon which group of people you were and where you found yourself when the flood arrived. Isn't that true? Simply stated, there was a storm sent and there was a refuge provided. Both of those elements are true. To protect the people from the storm, a refuge was given. Noah, the flood, and the ark is one of the most famous stories of all time. However, it pales in comparison to one other story, the story we speak about today, the gospel. is the most famous, most popular, most powerful story ever told. And our lesson today is actually the story of stories. There is no greater story than this story today. But the story of Noah's Ark almost eerily parallels our story today. It really does. If you line them up next to each other, there are some really interesting similarities between these stories. And that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to show you some facts from both stories. Both of these or all of these facts are true about both stories. Let's work through these four things, okay? Number one, there was a great amount of evil upon the earth. In the days of Noah, there was a great amount of evil upon the earth. Now think about today or in the days of Jesus. Is there a great amount of evil upon the earth now? Okay, that's very true. The two stories are similar that way. Number two, God declared that he would punish all that was evil because God is not okay with sin. God is not okay with evil. God actually detests evil. He hates it. It goes against everything that God stands for. But because God is love, we read about that from 1 John chapter 3, he provided a way of escape for his people from the punishment which follows the sin. God provided a way of salvation or escape from that punishment. That's true about both stories. Number four, some people take his warning seriously and they get into the provided refuge. And many people do not and they tragically die in the storm. All of those facts, those facts right there are true about both stories, Noah's Ark and the Gospel. These stories are a great similarity, great parallel to each other. And before we get to our main text today, because that's the point, we're going to get to John 15 here in a little bit, I want to go over the finer details of our story, the Gospel. The Gospel, which leads into the counsel from Jesus in John 15, because John 15 has a point. John 15 
is not the gospel, at least the beginning of it. John 15 comes later on. So we need the gospel to be the foundation for John 15 in order for it to make sense. And just like in the days of Noah, just like I told you, sin had run rampant in our world. Okay, sin was everywhere in the days of Jesus. And although our, our view of sin is very low, God's view of sin is very, very high. We have to remember that God created this world the same way he is. He is holy, he is righteous, and he is loving. And the world was founded on those very things. Holiness, righteousness, and love. Sin is the very opposite of God. He can't stand for it, and he can't stand idly by while sin takes over the world without warning his people of the tragic consequences of sin. So God did just that, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, people called prophets, God's messengers, were sent to God's people to warn them to turn back to God. That's why prophets were sent. You're astray, you're wandering, you're evil, turn back to God. But in the New Testament, prophets weren't going to be enough, were they? God had to send someone different, someone better. God actually decided to send his only begotten son to this earth to warn his people about the tragic consequences of sin and to provide a salvation for that sin. But a warning without hope is not a warning. Do you know that? A warning without hope is not a warning. It's condemnation. If a judge says to us that we're being sentenced to the electric chair for our crimes, that's not a warning. That's our sentence. Thankfully, our God is not a God of condemnation, is he? But of salvation and of warnings. Hell, uh, God himself does not send anybody to hell without a proper warning attached with the hope of salvation. He never does. He never sends anyone to hell without a proper warning and a chance at salvation. Listen to what it says in John 3.17. Most of us know John 3.16, but 3.17 should also be your favorite verse in the Bible. It said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That would be terrifying. But so that the world might be saved through him. Aren't you thankful for John 3.17? Jesus didn't come with condemnation. Jesus came with salvation. That's exactly why he came to this earth. God's warnings always come with hope. Amen? Always. His warnings are never a sentence. They're a chance at turning to hope. In the days of Noah, a devastating worldwide flood was coming to destroy all that was sinful. But God sent a refuge from the storm. Because God always sends hope along with his warnings. There's always hope attached with God's warnings. He does not want a tragic end to come to the people he created, the people he loves. He wants them to be saved. Aren't we thankful for this? Aren't we thankful that God always provides a refuge? In Noah's day, just like in our day, God's people were indeed very sinful. Even Noah and his family were sinners. But thankfully, sinners are not immediately destroyed by God. God does detest evil. He hates it. He loathes it. But God is also love. Our God is defined by love. And he will be patient. He will be long-suffering so that sinners, his original people, can turn back to him and find salvation and find a refuge. Did you know that about your God? That's what his nature is. For us to be saved, for him to heal us, for him to be with us for the rest of time. 
In the days of Noah, God told Noah to build an ark out of gopher wood. And this ark was going to have to be built according to God's precise instructions because it was going to be the very refuge that would keep Noah and his family safe from the coming devastating storm. The storm was no joke. It was not hyperbole. It was actual. It was going to be incredibly bad, incredibly devastating. It was literally going to destroy every living thing upon the earth except for that which was inside the ark. Everything else would die. And Noah, because he believed God, he trusted God. And because Noah trusted God, God, he obeyed God and told Noah, excuse me, Noah did exactly what God told him to do. Noah built the ark according to God's precise instructions. And Pastor Mel told us last week, how long did this process take? Does anyone remember? How long did the process of building the ark take? It was longer than a few days. 100 years. Most historians believe it took Noah approximately 100 years or so to finish building the ark. Wow. 100 years of precise and patient obedience to God's plan. Have you ever run out of patience with God? Honestly, don't answer out loud, but think inwardly. Did you ever run out of patience with God? Noah built an ark for 100 years without seeing the flood first. 100 years of patience, of hitting nails into wood, of building an ark, while people mocked and scorned him. Why would Noah do this for so long? And the answer is an easy one. Because Noah needed a refuge. His family needed a refuge from the coming storm, the coming flood. Otherwise, he and his entire family would be destroyed. That's why. See, we can't trifle with God's salvation. Noah could not trifle with building the ark, or he would die. We cannot trifle with God's salvation, otherwise we too will die. Now most of us know the story. It's a happy ending for Noah and his family, at least in that season of life. But many others who did not heed God's warning, the story is tragic. They did not turn from their sins. They did not help Noah and his family build the ark. They did not even get in the ark once the ark was completed. And when the flood arrived, it killed them all. They all died. In fact, they were all condemned. They trifled with God's plan of salvation. And therefore, many sinners were destroyed instead of saved because they did not believe God's warning. They did not trust that God could and would save them. And they did not obey God's precise instructions in order to find safety in his provided refuge. What did they do? They neglected God's message. And they died. It's a simple story. It's a sad story. And their death was deserving. And their death was deserving for the simple fact that they were sinners. They're the ones that had rebelled against God, and God sent them a refuge for the coming storm. And they decided to neglect his message and continue to live their lives the way they wanted to. Their death was not God's fault. It was their own. And this is the story that leads us perfectly into John 15, because now we're going to fast forward to our precise instructions from God, because that's what John 15 is. John 15 is our precise instructions in order to do what God has called us to do, to be in the refuge when the storm comes. So we find ourselves exactly in the same position Noah and his family found themselves in. A devastating worldwide storm is coming directly toward us. It's not a story. 
It's not make-believe. It's not hyperbole. It's actual. There's an actual firestorm coming to this earth that will destroy everything that is caught in it. And we cannot escape it on our own. There's no exit strategy for that. There is no plan for you and I to escape that storm when it arrives. We need a refuge. And thankfully, because God is love, he has provided a refuge at just the right time. Now we know what Noah and his family did. They obeyed God. They built and finished the ark according to God's precise instructions. And they were saved because the refuge was sufficient to save them. The question for us today is, what will we do? Just like Noah and his family, we're sinners. We also have a massive storm coming directly toward us that is being sent to destroy all that is ungodly and all that is sinful. And I'd have to raise my hand that I am ungodly and I am sinful. And so would you. But we've also been given a warning from God. A warning attached with hope. Because that's what God does. He always sends warnings attached with hope, the hope of salvation. We've also been given precise instructions from God in order to find salvation in that refuge. And if we understand all of that today, they're going to spend the rest of our time looking at our precise instructions in order to find eternal safety from the coming storm. Because that's what Jesus is doing in John 15. He's giving us our precise instructions in order to be safely tucked away inside the refuge when the storm arrives. And we have to remember, this storm is coming. It is coming. And this storm will literally be the end of the world. Remember all those movies, right? There's tons of movies about the end of the world. And they're interesting, right? It's like, oh man, what would I do with that? And is it going to be like this? And what's it going to look like? Well, it's actually going to happen one day. The end of the world will actually come. And it's going to be devastating. And it's going to be the end. And everything will change from that moment on. It will destroy everything and everyone caught in that storm. Therefore, we have to be inside. Inside God's refuge when the storm arrives or we too, like the people in Noah's day, will die. But our refuge is not a wooden ark that we have to build for 100 years. Our refuge is a person. Our refuge is not a man-made structure that can keep us safe for a hundred, excuse me, for a, for a year of worldwide flood. Our refuge is the Son of God who can protect us from the eternal storm of hell for all eternity. For all eternity. And interestingly, our refuge is going to be the one speaking to us today. He is the one going to give us our precise instructions about how to be safely tucked inside of him when the storm arrives. So let us be very careful to listen to Jesus today, okay? Listen to his precise instructions because he remains the only refuge available for mankind. There is no plan B. There is no other plan of refuge. It is Jesus or death. Let's look at John 15 once again and listen to the words of Jesus because hopefully now this makes great sense to us. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, 
It is he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, does anybody like metaphors? Jesus is going to use a metaphor here to help us understand his precise instructions. And that's why I like this passage. I like the visual image I get that helps me understand what he's saying. He tells us that he is the true vine. And we are the branches of that vine. We're the branches of the true vine. And this is not literal, right? This is not a literal thing he is saying. Let's clear that up right away. Or is it? You see, we often look at spiritual metaphors like they're the shadow of the physical reality. When in all reality, it's reversed. Did you know that? The physical representation is the shadow. The spiritual representation is the reality. It's actually the opposite of what you think. True branches that we think of as true branches on earth are shadows. Jesus himself is the true vine, and we are the true branches. Let us consider, if Jesus is the true vine, he's the only true vine. In other words, all other vines in this world are not true vines, because Jesus is the only true vine. So although Jesus is not saying that we are physical branches, or that he is a physical vine, that's not what he's saying, He's stating that the spiritual vine and the spiritual branches are the only ones that matter. It's proper to say that physical vines are similar to Jesus. And it's proper to say physical branches are similar to the church. The physical are the shadows of the spiritual. The spiritual realm is the most important realm because it lasts forever. The physical realm will pass away. Right? There's now a thing where people are now moving away from the physical. Did you know that? People are now, because of COVID and everything that's happened, they're now moving away from the physical to the virtual. In fact, we're live streaming our service today. Everything has become virtual today. Have you known that? Notice that? People are now moving away from the physical into the virtual, further away from the spiritual. When the spiritual is the most reality there is. Physical is more than virtual. Virtual is less than all of them. But we're all moving away, further away from spiritual, further away from physical, and we're moving toward the virtual, where there is no reality. Isn't that interesting? And the spiritual is the actual reality. Now, the image of the physical vine and the branches is going to help us understand what Jesus is saying today. Just like physical vines have physical branches jutting off of them, so does the true vine have branches jutting off of him. We, God's people, the church, are branches of Jesus. That's what we are. We're branches of Jesus. That hopefully isn't demeaning to you. That's hopefully a glorifying thing to hear. We're branches of Jesus, spiritually speaking. And just like physical branches are nothing without their physical vine, neither are spiritual branches anything without their spiritual vine. 
I like to think elementary sometimes. I want you to think elementary with me today, okay? What is the result of a physical branch not being connected to the vine or the tree? Do they live or do they die? They die. They die immediately. Do they bear any fruit if they're disconnected from the tree or the vine? They don't. They don't bear any fruit at all. Do they serve any purpose at all without being connected to the vine? Is there any intrinsic value in a dead, disconnected branch? And why is that? It's because the vine is the life source, not the branch. The branch has no life on its own. The branch gets its life from the vine. As soon as the branch breaks off from the vine, it's dead and unable to bear any fruit whatsoever. Now, the branch has a purpose, of course. It does. But only when connected to the vine. A branch on its own is dead and only good for fire tinder. And that's what Jesus is saying today. When a branch breaks off, we can use it for one purpose now. For the fire. This is precisely what Jesus is telling us. He is the true vine and we are the branches. And we have the purpose and design of bearing fruit because branches are not worthless when they're connected to the vine. And the fruit Jesus is referring to here today is not, of course, apples and oranges and bananas, things like that. He's referring to things of righteousness, such as love, fruits of love. We have been designed to offshoot Jesus and to bear all kinds of fruits that please our God, the vine dresser. He's the one in in charge of the entire vineyard, and we can offer fruit to God pleasing, acceptable fruit, sacrificial fruit to God that he desires and wants and accepts. That's our purpose. We have a tremendous purpose. Consider that purpose. Is there any other greater purpose than that than to offer God acceptable, pleasing sacrifices and fruits that he wants, that he accepts, and that he finds glory in? We, who were once sinners and rebels of God, we all were, myself included, can now offer God the very fruit that he delights in. That should blow our minds. We went from absolute fire tinder to now able and capable of bearing the fruit that our creator, our maker, desires. And who makes it all possible? Our true vine, Jesus. He is the only true vine. If we want to offer God something that he's going to accept and enjoy, We can only do it through Jesus. And further than that, we can only be alive through Jesus. We're not even alive without Jesus Christ. We're told that we're dead branches if we're not connected to Jesus. Dead. But when connected to Jesus, we are alive and we have the purpose of purposes. There is no greater purpose, no doctor, no nurse, no person in the military, No one on earth can hold a candle to the purpose of those who bear fruit for God and his glory. Now, we must keep this in the front of our minds. Jesus is giving us our precise instructions today about how to get into the refuge before the massive storm of fire comes to this world. And I want you to think of this. This is our version of building the ark, okay? It's not similar because we're not actually physically building anything, but this is our version of building the ark. This is about keeping us safe from the coming storm. Only Jesus is trying to offer us eternal safety from the fiery hell. 
we have to pay close attention today. We have to pay close attention to our precise instructions because eternal life is at stake. This is nothing to joke around with. And the bottom line from Jesus is quite simple. It's all about abiding. It's all about abiding. See, we don't have to build an ark. I don't have to pull out an amber. I don't have to know, know anything about building to do this. I simply have to stay connected to the vine. Because my Lord is not an ark. He's quite sufficiently alive, quite sufficiently strong, quite sufficiently able to save people on his own. He doesn't need any enhancements from me whatsoever. Jesus is the perfect refuge already from the storm. In fact, the scriptures speak of Jesus this way. There's our vine once again. It says this in Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Man, don't you love that verse? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Where do you want to be in the storm? I want to be in a strong tower. And he says the righteous runs to it and is safe. Safe from what? From hell. For how long? Forever. Forever. Jesus is seeking today for us to be inside of him well before the storm arrives. But most of us sitting here today are Christians. We're already Christians. We know this already, Pastor. Move on. Go to something deeper. We know we must believe in Jesus before the last day. Otherwise, we'll be cast into hell. And this is true. But this is not Jesus' admonishment to us today. It's not. I want you to notice his language. Let's look at it again. In verse 4, he says, Abide in me. That's very interesting. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and dries up, and they gather them, cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now class, what's the key word there? I even put it in yellow for you. He says it several times. What's the word? Shout it out. Abide. abide. The word abide is very easy to find there. Not one time in this singular passage does Jesus say believe in him. He doesn't say believe in me because he already said it. We all know John 3.16, right? John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the entire Bible. That's several chapters before this. Jesus told Nicodemus, who was an unbeliever, to believe in him. Nicodemus, you're not a believer. Nicodemus, you're not connected to the divine. Nicodemus, you're dead right now. Nicodemus, believe in me and you will have eternal life. That passage was written about an unbeliever. The counsel we read today is to believers. It's to believers. And how do we know that? Because Jesus flat out says so in verse 3. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That right there tells us he's not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to believers. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He's speaking to people that are already spiritually clean. These people have already believed in Jesus. They've already been healed and cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. They are believers. Jesus would not call them clean if they were unbelievers. He would not. 
he says, you have already been made clean. His counsel today is to those who already believe that Jesus is the Savior and the strong tower. So if you believe that today, this is for you. But why counsel believers? We already believe Jesus. Why counsel us? Noah believed God. Didn't he? Didn't Noah believe God? Didn't Noah have a relationship with God? But didn't Noah still have to build the ark? And the word abide unlocks exactly what Jesus is telling us to do. The word abide can also be translated into the word remain, but I decided to look it up, see what the word abide actually meant in the dictionary. I got two definitions. Number one is to remain stable or fixed in a state. To abide means to remain stable or fixed in a state. Number two definition is to continue in a place. That shouldn't surprise you. That's what the word abide means. We don't tell someone to remain where they aren't yet, do we? That makes no sense. We tell people to remain where they already are, don't we? For example, when I take my family out in public, it's quite a task, if you might imagine, what that process is like bringing seven children into public. It's quite the process. And the first thing my wife and I think about is when we go into public, is my children are all young. They're all young, ages nine and under. And we're constantly worried that when we bring them out of the car, one is going to move away from the pack and possibly be in danger of being hit by a car. So the very first thing we do when we bring them out of the car and out of their car seats and set them by the car is we always say this, stay here, stay by the car, stay by mommy and daddy, and don't move at all. Stay right here. In fact, I did it yesterday. I brought them out of the car. I set them right next to the car and said, stay, because I still have several kids to get out of the car. Don't move a muscle. Remain by the car. And the reason I do that is because I still have several kids to get out of the car, and I don't want one of my children wandering away into traffic, or they might get run over. It's that simple. So I tell them to abide. I tell them to remain where they are. And that's exactly Jesus' counsel to us today. Exactly. Christians, we're branches. We are branches. Jesus is our true vine. We're both dead without him, and we're incapable of bearing any fruit without him. We must abide or remain in Jesus. But why? Aren't there entire doctrines in Scripture that teach us that Jesus will complete the work he started, Philippians 1.6. Jesus will complete the work he started in us. That's what it says in Philippians 1.6. And doesn't even Jesus go after the wandering sheep and bring them back to the fold? Luke 15.3-7. Yes, he does. Then why? Why do I have to abide in Jesus if Jesus himself is going to hold me to himself and even chase me down when I stray from him? And the simple answer is this, and all parents will understand this, because he said so. <laughs> Because Jesus said so. You guys ever, ever find yourself as parents using that and you hate when your parents told you that and now you find yourself using that with your own children? Why, Dad? Give me a good reason. Because I said so. Zip it. Do it. Could not the very same be said of good parents? As a good father, I plan to complete my job of raising my kids to maturity. I have every intention of doing that. And if one of my children strays from the truth or from their family, I have every intention of bringing them back because I seek to be a good father. And yet when I take them out of the car and place them next to me, I tell them to abide. 
because one lapse in obedience can cause a tragic end to my child's life. It's that simple. One act. One time. They move away from the car. A car hits them. They're dead. If my children stray from me in one moment and step in front of a car, that could be the end of their life. Does that mean I didn't love them enough to protect them or love them enough to keep them safe? On the contrary, I strictly told them to abide and to remain where they are because I love them. Do you see what Jesus is doing here today? Jesus knows better than anyone, than anyone, that hell is real. In fact, no one spoke more about hell than Jesus. The author of love, the author of salvation, spoke the most about hell because he's the one who knows it's real. And Jesus knows better than anyone of the allurement of the danger of sin. He knows that straying from him is eternally dangerous. And so out of pure love for us, he tells us quite simply, Abide in me. Remain in me. Don't stray from me. I am all you have. And I'm everything. And just like Noah, the Lord warns those whom he loves, does he not? So in verse 6, Jesus says this, If anyone does not abide in me, if you don't listen to my instructions, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. Because that's what you do with dead branches. It's quite obvious that Jesus knows that hell is real, and it's quite obvious Jesus does not want, want us to end up there, any of us. My children are also clear that the strictest punishment will be given to them if they don't obey my warnings, because my warnings are given to them out of love of protection. If they disobey my warnings, they could be fatally harmed. If they don't abide and they don't remain, they could die. Therefore, if I watch one of them not abiding and not remaining, I strictly, strictly tell them to obey. So my warnings are sent with a strict tone. Sometimes parents have to use a strict tone. And the warning given to us today is a stern one. He doesn't have to say it that way. He could, say, he could just say, just trust me. Trust me. You're going to want to be near me. Just trust me. But he doesn't. He says, the branches that are dried will be gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Is it difficult to notice the love Jesus has for us? Can you see it? Because I can see it when I read this passage. Can you see it? Rewinding back to the days of Noah, Noah was told to build an ark out of gopher wood. It was not advice. It was a commandment. And it was commanded because God knew the flood was going to come and he did not want Noah and his family to be destroyed in the flood. So he commanded them to obey. Commanded them to build an ark according to his precise instructions so that the ark could save them from the storm. And it took Noah and his family 100 years to build this thing. Can you imagine the discipline that took? What if they stopped building the ark after 85 years? <clears throat> And they said, that's good enough. You guys ever do that with like, a piece of furniture? <laughs> Janine and I did that with a bed once. And we put the bed together and it was like, you know what? This is taking a while. And it's not as tight as it could be. It's not as straight as it could be. I said, let's call it. The kid's not going to fall out. You know, it, it was over at that moment. It, it had taken longer than it should have. So I said, you know what? Let's call it. It's over. You know, if, it, if, it, if the kid slips out one day, we'll tighten it. Um, what if Noah had done that? 85 years in, he said, that's good enough. It's plenty. But Noah, one of the walls is still exposed. It's plenty. 
Look at all the wood. We're good. God told him to make it out of what kind of wood? Gopher wood. Anyone know what that is? What if Noah had taken shortcuts and said, I'm going to use woodchuck wood? I don't know. Is that a thing? Would the ark have held up under such intense water? What if Noah decided to make it his own way? With his own wood, his own plan. He threw the blueprint out and said, I got a better plan. Noah would have died. His family would have died. It's that simple. Jesus is the author of life, and he's the savior of the world. He knows best about how to keep people safe. But we have to understand his commandment today comes from love. And his commandment must be obeyed precisely according to his instructions, or we flirt with death. And this time it's not death in a flood, it's death in an eternal fire. Just like Noah couldn't slack off or take shortcuts, neither can we. And yes, this is going to take work, lots of work. We're using this thing on Wednesday called our journey with Jesus, right? It's an entire journey that takes your entire life to complete. It's a lot of work to follow Jesus Christ. And yes, it's going to take the rest of our lives to complete this. But if we do, we will be firmly and safely tucked away in the strongest, safest refuge there ever could be, the Lord himself, the strong tower. Jesus himself, the Son of God, is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and he is the one that's going to protect us from the storm of God's wrath against sin. And although Jesus' instruction is going to take lots of work for the rest of our lives in order to complete it, it's actually quite simple instruction. He says this in verse 9. That's why Noah couldn't take shortcuts right there. In verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that so my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Probably thinking, you tricked us, Pastor. You told us it was going to be simple. And now Jesus said, obey my commandments plural. That seems quite complicated. And that's kind of true. That's kind of true. Learning the commandments of Jesus can be complicated because they're all over the four Gospels. They're all over the New Testament, and you have to learn them and discipline yourself to know them. And they won't be learned without that discipline. So it's true. No lazy person will know the commandments of Jesus. But it's almost as if Jesus knew our minds would jump there as soon as we heard that. And this is what he says in verses 11 to 12. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That's verse 11. Verse 12. This is my commandment. Singular. Do you notice it? This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Period. Jesus says, oh, Christian, if you listen to me today, my joy is going to be inside of you. And that joy one day is going to be filled to the max level. When the storm of God's wrath comes against sinners, not only are you safely tucked inside of me, you're in my glorious kingdom for the rest of eternity. Not only will the storm not get you, but my joy will be your joy. It will be filled to the max more than you can even imagine if you listen to me. 
So please let us take Jesus' counsel today as pure and simple investment because that's what it is. Nobody can give us what Jesus can give us. The world can't fill your joy up that full. The world can give you a little bit, a little taste, a little sample. Here's a little bit of joy. Enjoy it. It's going to go away very quickly. I hope it was lovely because it's gone. Go get more, go get more, go get more. Jesus says, I could fill it up to the max and I can keep it there. And no one else can offer you that. Nobody. And not only that, the instructions Jesus just gave us of obeying his commandments is simple because the commandments all boil down into one commandment. The commandment to love one another. One commandment, guys. One. That's it. Love one another. Love one another. That is all of the commandments summed into one. One single focus. That right there is how you abide in Jesus. You love one another. We simply must love one another. If we love one another over and over and over, it's like Noah driving nails into wood over and over and over. One day we will be firmly and secure in the arms of Jesus forever. We are the branches. He is the true vine. And I want to make this clear today, okay? Jesus says, love one another as I loved you. We can't get confused here. Our acts of showing love to others is not what saves us. Can I say that again? Our acts of showing love to others is not what saves us. Jesus alone is the Savior. Jesus alone is the refuge. Jesus alone gets 100% of the credit for our salvation. The acts of love that we do for others will turn into fruit for God. Delicious, acceptable fruit for our maker. And it will also serve as proof that we actually did believe in Jesus. No love, no proof. Can you imagine taking no proof of your belief to Judgment Day? I did believe, but I have no proof to show that I believed. No, that's not going to be good. You need proof. That what you said you believed, you actually believed. And showing love to others is that fruit, is that proof that you offer to God and say, God, here's my belief in action. Showing love to others is how we build our ark. Quite simple. When God sees fruits of love hanging off our lives one day, do you know what that's going to mean? It's going to mean that we're attached to the true vine. That's all it means. If he sees love, acts of love hanging off of our lives, the only conclusion anyone can make, God can make, is that they must have followed my son. They must have believed Jesus. So as we close today, if we're attached to the true vine, these three things are going to be true of us for the rest of eternity. If we remain in Jesus, where we belong, these three things will be true. Number one, we'll be safe forever. The storm of God's wrath will never touch us. We will be safely tucked inside the kingdom of God for the rest of eternity. That should be enough, right? That should be enough reason to abide in Jesus. But there's more. Number two, we will be able to offer God delicious, acceptable, pleasing fruits that bring him glory. A tremendous amount of glory. Don't you want to offer God something with your life? Something that he'll accept, something that will please him. Remember, Abel did that. Cain's brother brought God a sacrifice, his best lamb 
He said, God, here you go. This is my best. This is the best thing I got. It's yours. I want you to have it. And God said, I accept it. Our love is that to God. It's fruit that he accepts. Number three, Jesus' joy will become our joy and it will be filled to the max level for the rest of eternity. Your joy will never waver ever again. It will never waver based on circumstances. This person likes me. This person spoke well of me. Oh, I had a good week. Oh, I was sick. Oh, I got fired. Oh, my finances aren't as great. Oh, joy comes up and down in life. Not in eternity. It's filled to the max for the rest of eternity because Jesus does it. So what do we do in order to abide? Noah was called to build an ark for 100 years. Imagine the blisters. Imagine the blisters Noah must had hitting nail after nail after nail into wood for a hundred years. I do it three times, I get a blister. But imagine what peace and joy Noah had when the rain began to fall and his entire family is tucked safely inside the refuge of the ark. And our job is similar to Noah's. We're called to take out our spiritual hammers and to drive in nails of love over and over and over into the lives of others until Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, he's going to look for those blisters. Show me the blisters on your hands because there's going to be blisters, spiritual blisters. Show me the blisters in your life because that will prove that you love the way that I loved. There must be a tremendous amount of blisters in people like the Apostle Paul, Peter, James and John, the apostles. Every Christian who followed Jesus Christ has a tremendous amount of blisters from loving one another. And if Jesus sees those in our life, you know what he's going to say to the Father? They're mine. They get to come with me. And on that day, we will enter our refuge for all eternity and we will never have to fear the storm of God's wrath against our sins ever again. And all we must do is similar to what Jesus did for us. Nails were driven into wood for a hundred years by Noah. Jesus had nails driven into his hands to keep him on the cross. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it? And although we should strive to be like Noah, that was last week's lesson, we have been commanded to be like Jesus. It will always be love for the rest of eternity. Love is our duty, love is our proof that we believe in Jesus, and love is our sacrifice of fruit to God one day. So let us abide and remain in Jesus these three ways. It's very, very simple. Number one, and I hope you're already here, get near Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Turn to Jesus with your life and say, I'm yours, you're mine for the rest of time. Get baptized, join his church, get near Jesus. Number two, it's exactly what he said to us today. Stay near him. Abide. Don't consider church optional. Don't consider Bible reading optional. Oh, I'll get to it when I get to it. Oh, if I'm not sick or if I'm not tired or if I don't have the ideal week, then I won't do it. No. Stay near Jesus. Abide in Jesus at all costs. There is only danger outside of Jesus. Number three, obey his commandments through one simple act of profound sacrificial love over and over and over and over until your ark is completed. See, the Lord is our refuge. The Lord, Jesus, is our refuge. And he is the one speaking to us today 
about how to obey his precise instructions in order to be safe and joy-filled for the rest of eternity. I hope that you're listening. I pray that you're listening. Because this is how we change the world. Abide near Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Love our neighbor as Jesus loved us. Can we pray? Father, thank you for the message of the storm and the refuge. I'm so thankful for your warnings that come attached with hope. Father, we may have come here today a train wreck, not focused, not vibrant spiritually, all over the place. But today things can change. Today, this could be the moment, the day that we wake up and say, from now on, I'm going to abide in Jesus for the rest of my life. I'm going to listen to his commandment to love one another for the rest of my life because I'm not going to flirt with eternal danger. Jesus loves us. We know that. He died on the cross and he also teaches us today about how to stay safe. Safe near him. Safe in him. Father, help us listen. Help us put this into practice. Remember this, even as we have a meeting, even as we have a luncheon. Keep this at the forefront of our minds and we give you all credit and glory. We thank you for Jesus, our refuge. It's in his name we pray. Amen.